0: Hello and welcome to Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today is our third episode of this special format, and I'm super stoked to introduce our guest. Dr. Nick Norwitz is a returning guest and host of this special episode. Dr. Norwitz completed his PhD from the University of Oxford in neurometabolism and is starting his medical training at Harvard Medical School. He has an incredible and fascinating health story about osteoporosis, the Boston Marathon, ulcerative colitis, and more, which you can check out in episode 100 of our show. Dr. Nick Norwitz. Welcome back to Bama's Body Radio.
1: Thank you, Casey. really excited to be here. And with our, our guest, who I guess we're gonna introduce now, and yes, then I wanna say something about
0: him. Absolutely are. Dr. Adrian Soto-Moda is a specialist in internal medicine. Currently, he works as a clinical scientist and internal medicine consultant at the National Institute of Mex- Medical Sciences and Nutrition of Mexico. His line of research focuses on the human metabolism of ketone bodies and ketosis. Many diseases are characterized or worsened by fuel management impairments, and he is particularly interested in the potential benefits of his research and in patients with type 2 diabetes. Dr. Sotomoda, it's an honor to welcome you to Boundless Body Radio.
2: Thanks for having me, guys. I'm really thrilled to be here, and I am one of those people who are uh, way harder to stop from talking than to inviting to talk. So if I, if, if at any point you want me to shut up, just say.
0: <laughs> You're in the right place. So we invited you so you could talk <laughs> as much as possible. We invited Nick so that he right. could be the host and interview you. So I'm going to turn the time over to him.
1: Yeah. Um, so before we get started, I'm going to uh, do my, my obligatory job and embarrass Adrian a little bit. Um, <laughs> because I, I, I want, I want people listening to understand who you are to me because it's been a fun year. I've been on lots of podcasts, talked to lots of people. We've never been on a podcast together. And so, you know, Adrian is a guy who spends a lot of time treating patients in the lab that doesn't have a huge public profiler persona. Um, and so I think people need to know who you are. Uh, okay. First of all, he's a brilliant researcher and physician, but I'm not even going to go there. I met Adrian under pretty funny circumstances, which was, um, when I matriculated to Oxford, so I had just finished undergrad straight out of college. I had never lived outside New England and ended up end up in Oxford. And, you know, it's a, it's a new world for me. I don't really have any connections. And um, I, there's this guy in the lab one year above me. So Adrian was doing his PhD um, at Oxford with me and he was a year above me. But he wasn't just like one year above me and my peer. He was a lot more uh sage i guess i don't really have anything scripted and advanced in terms of like he had already done his medical training and residency in mexico and had been treating patients And then his hospital had you know given him resources to come do a phd so he could do his own research so i was doing my phd straight out of college and then going on to do medical school he had already done that so it was really interesting for me to have someone who i could kind of consider a peer but who also had all this interesting life experience and expertise in an area i wanted to go into Plus he was always just super willing to like train me and teach me medical stuff. Like when I had to learn cannulations we'd go into the lab and he's like, yeah, just stick me in the arm. And then I'd be screwing up and he'd be like adjusting. He's like, no, 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 let me show you. And he's like adjusting it in his arm, things that would make people queasy. And he was always like for getting like biopsy or X, Y, and Z, which was really fun. But I think I I will always have a debt to him and, and as will my parents, because as we talked about in episode 100, uh the boundless body radio podcast you know my story i i moved to oxford and and immediately started getting sick and ended up ending up in the hospital so it was like a couple weeks in and i keep on finding myself in the hospital and the docs there's like who's your emergency contact and i'm like uh well there's this kind of nice guy in the lab like i and i call agent like um would you mind being my emergency contact and i can't imagine what was going through your head at that time like it was this nu- nuisance child from new england uh, cre- creating havoc but you're always so gracious and brought me my stuff and were always willing to like help me out so you know from that day on throughout our our time together in the lab or just nerding out you know over our our, our weekly wednesday dinners at uh and sushi and i i am pretty convinced that the waiter and waitresses there all thought we were we were gay. Nothing wrong with that, but we always <laughs> <were>. <laughs> of no, I, it's, it's, I shared the same two things. It was the it was the jungle fish salad, and yeah. the the hamachi kama. We so always share those
2: <laughs> <laughs> So cute. Oh, okay. it, it was it was. Uh, I mean, we met under weird circumstances, but it was uh, the beginning of a very very nice friendship. And um, we we despite being at different points in our training. I mean, I kind of did it backwards to the way Nick is doing it now. Um, we have lots of things in common, lots of interests, narrative interests, and of course, keto metabolism. So mm-hmm. um, it was it was uh, perhaps not the standard way of starting a friendship, but it definitely became one of the most valued and fruitful friendships, well, yeah. friendship relationships I've had.
1: No, I, I I, think we'll be connected for life by the hip. Um even though it was really only a couple of years because it was curtailed yeah, through covid but um sure yeah it is it was from every science thing to every nerd thing like game of Thrones we watched together, MCU movies infinity war uh have you seen
2: uh, loki episode one yeah i, I already did. I, I watched yes. it yesterday right. I, I was trying to avoid spoilers all right well, yeah, we'll yeah. it's 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 a, a strong start but yeah i mean I, I think that' my relationship with Nick is one of those friendships where you like every conversation can be started just like at any moment. Like you do not actually need to say, Hey, how you have been? What's up? How's the family? You can just simply send a random meme. You think the other person will find funny and (laughs) then don't start for the next two weeks, but then send another random meme or have you seen this paper. And it's, it's, I mean, it's a nice, it's a nice relationship. Well,
1: I actually don't think we've really talked since last March when, like, we left, or at least I left the UK, and now we're just jumping on a podcast, and we have no agenda whatsoever. For we have no plans to talk. I figured we just have good chemistry; things will roll out. So, I I mean, I, I guess I'm interviewing. I do have some questions, and we can dig into it, and then bromance later. But um, since we have a a somewhat limited time, I guess where I want to start. you know, a lot, of, a lot of podcasts, we talk about like standard American diet, and it's very American or UK centric, but you're a practicing physician in, in Mexico, in Mexico City. So I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the, the unique challenges you face, things you see. If I'm correct, I think Mexico now has, it has the highest average BMI of any country in the world, except for maybe the we UAE. Do. We so have I, the fattest
2: kids in the world.
1: So I, 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 I want to first open it up for you to talk about what it's like being a physician studying what you study in Mexico. Um, and you can take that wherever you want.
2: It's, it's um, I would start with an anecdote. Uh, a few years ago, that this was perhaps six or five years ago, uh, I'm, I mean, I'm embarrassed to have forgotten his name but a professor from Washington U, from the Metabolic Lab uh, at Washington U, came to the hospital I am working as a consultant now. And this was his first time in Mexico. This guy specialized in obesity research. And he came, uh, well, in a seminar or series of seminars about obesity. He started his lecture by saying that the night before, he met, for the first time, churros. Churros is a Mexican dessert made with vegetable oil, a ton of sugar, and the cheapest flour you can find. And he started his lecture by saying, you know, guys, forget about it. You're doomed. Stop doing obesity research. You're doomed, because there is no way that food is so cheap and so delicious to, 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 to win this battle. I mean, when you face something as delicious as churros, as cheap as churros, and as harmful as churros, you're basically doomed. I mean, it, it's, he described this as, a, as, a, as a, almost like, like a eureka moment for, when he tastes this perfect mix, mixture of, and actually they also have a little bit of salt. Uh, sugar, flour, cheap oil, and salt, and amazed about, well, what he paid for it, for that dessert. And he said, I mean, we wouldn't win this. Um, um, I, I mean, it's very hard for many different reasons. And, and I am convinced that people, most of the time, do not choose to be obese and do not choose to become diabetic. Or to start living with diabetes. Uh, most times it's a consequence of their circumstances. And these circumstances are economic, are cultural, are perhaps emotional, uh, perhaps have to do with many other non metabolic uh, factors. And Mexico is on the, I mean, needs to climb. A lot of obstacles to solve those issues because, first of all, it's way cheaper to buy Coca Cola than uh, bottled water. I mean, you, 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 you. I mean, you could start by asking why we need bottled water because not everybody in Mexico has uh, potable water. So some of them need it bottled. Uh, most people will prefer to buy Coca Cola over milk. I mean, the milk debate is a different one, but. It's way cheaper to eat white bread. And well, in Mexico, we have something in Spanish is called pan dulce, which is like dessert bread. I mean, bread, as if bread on its own is not enough simple carbohydrate. We coat white bread with many different forms of sugar. And this is standard dinner for most Mexicans because it's cheap, because it's tasty, because it reminds you uh, what you had when you were a kid, it, it you you also have some form of uh, regional tribalism about the dessert in your town. You, I mean, it's it's a very complex phenomenon. It's not simply uh, sugar is tasty. It's not only uh, these these foods are cheap. It's the mixture of culture with, with I will stress, the the regional tribalism about it, because I I typically say that Mexico could easily be five different countries uh, under the same flag. Uh, It's huge. The whole UK, islands included, fits in one of our counties. Just, I mean, Chihuahua is larger than the whole UK, islands included. Uh, And you can find places in Mexico with many, many different uh, climates, diets, patterns of work. We actually are the most, the genetically most diverse population in the world. There is this science magazine paper, uh, 2015, the same genetic distance you find between southern and northern Mexicans is the same distance you would find between Koreans and French people. Wow. So it's 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 just too complex. We are we are genetically diverse. We are there is a lot of inequality in Mexico. I mean, there's a lot of people who can afford very high quality foods, and a lot of people who can't afford high quality foods. There are many different regions and therefore many different tribalisms about foods and desserts and we are amazing in the kitchen i mean mexican food is is world heritage i mean we we uh, objectively speaking of course i'm biased here but objectively speaking we we reach the level of witchcraft and sorcery when we are inside a kitchen. That has been socially Even
0: verified. Th- that is socially verified. That is objective. You guys have the it's, best food. It's, no question. It's,
2: it's a scientific fact. It's a scientific fact, and there is no way that if we are this good, food is this cheap, but it is also this bad quality, we are in the problems we are. We are the world's highest uh, per capita consumers of soda in the world. We have the fattest kids in the world diabetes incidence, is not even stabilized. It hasn't stopped raising for the last two decades. Mm. We are an aging population who will inevitably face the health and economic burden of losing lots and lots of working years because a good amount of their population simply cannot work because of the consequences of obesity, hypertension, and diabetes. So it is I'm I'm not gonna say impossible, but it is definitely challenging trying to convince a patient in Mexico that the way they've been eating for their whole lives is causing most of their health problems, most of their health problems. And it's 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 challenging to Find options they will find as appealing as what they would find in a family reunion every weekend. Yeah, it's it's a different uh, it's a different there, challenge.
1: There's so much to unpack there, and I want to dig a little bit into those other factors you were referring to before we move on to the metabolic, because I know we'll get there, including um, the social factors, the economic factors, and then education. But starting with the social, because I find that. Such an interesting thing, starting with the principle that I I think most uh, us three would probably agree that either sugar is an addictive substance or it's a substance of abuse. It's on that spectrum. We can hash out definitions later. But for the sake of argument, let's call it a somewhat addictive substance. If that's the case, it's unique in that most other addictive substances have a social stigma associated with their use. Whereas with something like sugar or simple carbohydrates, there's a social stigma associated with their abstinence. So if you're someone who wants to go low carb in Mexico, just because of the social structure and the community around food that you are raised in and immersed in, I can imagine it'd be very, very difficult. I don't know if you can... And having you would be fearful
2: remote- of offending lots of people. I mean, you would be... Because it is, it is also a sign of appreciation to give sweets to someone else. Yeah. So rejecting those very frequent or usual gifts or not asking for a second round in your plate will make people think you don't like them or you didn't like the food they offered you. Or, I mean, it's it's cultural. It's also very, very, very cultural. So if I, I'm going to ask you a
1: hypothetical. Let's say you have a patient or just a per, any person Um who wants to adopt a ketogenic diet. They know it's good for them. they actually are incredibly well-educated. Do you think there's a large proportion of people who even having all that knowledge about kind of what they want to do, would accept that they're not going to do it specifically because they just, they're more concerned about offending other people in the the social construct. Like I'll accept being unhealthy or I'll accept being overweight so that I can just social like function socially in this environment. I mean, not
2: both. It's, it's, it's definitely possible. And I, I've definitely met patients as, as the hypothetical, not so hypothetical case you're describing. Um, for, for, in Mexico, we have something called uh, the Guadalupe Reyes Marathon, which stands for the festivity of uh, Virgen de Guadalupe, which falls on December the 12th to the wise men festivity, which falls on January the sixth. So between December the twelfth and January the sixth, every year, Mexicans gain on average five kilograms. On average? It's it's it's, it's, it's I, I typically I typically measure these in babies. That it's infer- like infer- you, you have two more babies, you know, like that's yeah, that's 11 pounds. Oh, in... in... It's, it's it's yeah, it's between 10 and 11 pounds, and this is standard. And, and because this is the season where people uh, see their distant relatives, and they have uh, well, posadas is literally a party every single night for 10 nights before Christmas. So, before you have this very, very large dinner in Christmas Eve you have had a very, very large dinner for the last 10 consecutive nights. And in towns, in Mexican towns, people are used to uh, a family hosts one of these parties uh, every night, so there's also like a little competition on who was the best host, who offered more food. I mean, it's it's a vicious cycle. And I've had very well-educated patients who acknowledge they should go uh, into carbohydrate restriction, but then say, can we do this after Guadalupe Reyes? Can we start this after uh, January? Because I'm going to meet with lots of people. I'm going to meet my relatives. I'm going to see my mother, or my mother is cooking this particular dish for this for our posada, and I don't want to offend anyone. So, can I, can I start this in January? And of course, my answer is I mean, you can start this whenever you want. But I mean, bear in mind that if you start this in January, it's likely that you are starting five kilograms above what yeah. you are today. So it's, I mean, if I were you, I mean, I can't advise you to wait till January or to February to start these, these lifestyle changes. I understand why you want to do them. Uh, Losing extra five kilograms, extra 11 pounds, it's not a trivial task. I mean, don't do things harder for yourself. It's, it definitely happens. I mean, this cultural, uh, I don't want to call them obstacles, but this heritage definitely makes things more difficult for even very well-educated and highly resourceful people. Um, and, and, and let's talk a little bit
1: about that, that education. Like, do you, I don't, how do you think it compares to the United States or anywhere else in the world? Do you think people have access to education? Do you think there are public efforts to really teach people about nutrition? Um, well,
2: I mean, it, it's, it's a funny uh thing you ask because uh, actually, almost uh, immediately after I returned to Mexico, I got invited by Mexico's uh education ministry. To collaborate with them in, uh, in an online course about nutrition. So it, this was... I, I used to complain that it was way more important for Mexicans to learn about nutrition than to learn, I don't know, the history, the, the very last detail of the history of Mexico. I mean, I, I don't care if you don't know the differences between the constitution, the second and the third constitution of Mexico, but I do care that you know the difference between uh, trans fats and PUFA, you know? Like, this would be more useful. And when they invited me, uh, my first reaction was, gosh, this is going to be lots and lots of work. Uh, Because what I replied was, I am only interested if I can put my insight into the scripts. I don't want to be just someone who records videos because, I mean, you can hire whoever for that. If I am going to do this, I want you to give me uh, access to the actual screens. Uh, At first, they didn't like very much the idea, but after a while, they accepted it. And I ended up recording 16 half-hour videos for these online, uh, aimed to high school students, health and nutrition related, And my experience after that, we actually finished recording those episodes uh, like two weeks ago, is that it's definitely worth it. I mean, as happens with most projects, when you analyze them in retrospective, you are not 100% happy with the final result. I mean... I, I actually don't, don't like to to see the first episodes because I can't stop watching the things I would have done different. But uh, what well, Michael Crichton says, uh, that good texts are not written, they are rewritten. And I think that's the same for any educational product. And if these guys give me the opportunity to do it again, I would do it again. And if they give me the opportunity to do it a thousand times, I would do it a thousand times. Because... When you compare the reach you have in one of these new and forcely adopted online resources for educating people, the reach you have there is way, way larger than the reach I have in my private practice. Perhaps I can do things with more detail when I am one-on-one, but to, to go back to the original question, education is improving, is profiting from these COVID imposed new ways of teaching. Mm-hmm. And I am hopeful. And there is definitely a long path to 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 walk, but it is improving. It was absolutely absent, and now at least is in the mind of decision makers and education content producers. So I hope, I hope this particular Factor will be improved in the shorter mid-term. That's a fantastic project.
1: Um, What were some of the principles that you taught high school level students in those sixteen half-hour videos?
2: It was it was a very very uh, it was a continuous uh, battle, particularly when talking about traditional dishes. Because, for example, uh, there was there was this episode about drinks, things you can drink. And refined carbohydrates, the worst kind of refined carbohydrates are of course liquid carbohydrates, because they reach very, very rapidly your gut and they are absorbed almost immediately. It's they have a a higher glycemic index than their sugar content equivalent in solid food. Uh, Every region in Mexico has their traditional drink, which is a variation of corn flour plus sugar, or wheat flour plus cocoa and sugar, or a different process or kind of corn flour plus sugar, or you get the idea. So I mean, none of these traditional drinks is actually a good idea. And they weren't so problematic until recently, because they weren't drinks you were able to drink throughout the whole year. I mean, they were seasonal drinks and they were expensive to produce and perhaps you had one or two of these drinks every once in a while. But now people can produce them every day and drink them every day. And they are perhaps marginally, I don't want to say better, marginally less worse than having a Coca-Cola. But because they are not a Coca-Cola, they don't inflict this guilt on people who consume them. And people think that because they are traditional and they are produced with natural ingredients and they are proud of their heritage, they think, oh, at least I'm not drinking Coca-Cola. I am having lots and lots of atole every day. Well, it's it's actually not that far. So that particular episode, for example, was very problematic because there's really no there are no arguments to properly defend the health attributes of these drinks. And understandably, from the institutional point of view of the education ministry, they weren't, I mean, they didn't want to bash these drinks too badly because there's heritage attached to them, et cetera, et cetera. In the end, we didn't say never drink these things, but we also, I mean, but I made sure that, okay, these are very, very occasional drinks. Don't do them with just sugar. You want to be sure that if you are having sugar, have protein with it. Uh, there was a, I managed to to produce and to convince them to have an intermittent intermittent fasting episode. Ooh. So this was I am very proud of that. There, there was a tax funded and publicly available. Uh, with federal money-produced episode about uh, intermittent fasting, which, which I think it was very, very necessary. Uh, we did discuss how, I mean, for example, some people in Mexico believe that corn flour is less harmful than wheat flour. Or some people believe that cane sugar is less harmful than sugar, although they are the same. And, I mean, these misconceptions... Uh, I mean, I, I wanted to be sure or to make sure that these, these misconceptions, common misconceptions were addressed in this episode. So uh, I, I did as much as I could and the best I could to talk about, for example, we, we did another, another, uh, we managed to put a circadian rhythm episode inside the nutrition block, like trying to convince people that nutrition actually starts in the sun. So it's it's uh, again, it's not perhaps the complete or final result I would have liked, but it was close to it. And I will really do it a thousand times because I believe I it's likely I would have more impact with these videos than in my private practice. Yeah.
1: That's so cool. I'm I'm so happy you were doing that that project. That's awesome, especially the intermittent fasting episode. Um just because of I, I want to get into other topics, I'm not going to go into the, the economics question, but let's let's shed a little hope. I mean, do you agree with the professor from the uh, University of Washington who came and, and said, bros, you're, do you you're doomed or do you based on your clinical experience, think that there is some hope? Do you have success stories of patients who have been able to pull off a, like a low carb diet in uh, Mexico and, and how do they do it? What does a low-carb uh, Mexican diet look like? I mean, the,
2: the short answer is yes, I, I have hope. Uh, the long answer is uh, there is this phrase, well, quote from uh, Mexico's uh, wealthiest man and most successful uh, entrepreneur, Carlos Slim. He says that the perfect recipe for mediocrity is pessimism. You can't, I mean, optimism and and staying optimistic is the first step to actually improve things because the moment you are, you convince yourself there is no solution, you will stop finding and you will stop looking for potential solutions. And I think he's right about that. I think it's important to stay optimistic despite how adverse the environment uh, can be about this. But I am also... Optimistic, Not only because I am trying to convince myself uh, it's worth fighting for, but also because I've seen closely success stories in my patients and some success stories in my close relatives and actually success stories in myself. As, as most Mexican kids, I was a fat kid. And people joke about if you're not a fat kid in Mexico, you won't, be, you won't have the right to claim a passport. I mean, it's, 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 such a, it's, it's a staple of, of, of Mexican childhood to be at least a little bit overweight. It was my case. Everyone in my family struggled with obesity at some point of their lives. And now everyone is very near their ideal weight. I've seen lots and lots of patients drastically improve, get rid of their medications, reverse their diagnosis, uh, acknowledge they are better by refraining from sugar and refined carbohydrates than by by continuing their standard diets. I mean, I am optimistic, yes, because I think if you lose optimism, you will stop looking for solutions, but also because I've seen it work. So it's it's really just a matter of don't give up sometimes. And and something I I typically say to my patients uh, every time we are about to start a lifestyle-changing process is expect this is not going to work the first time. And even if it works perfectly the first time and you feel amazing in a week, expect you will stabilize your your weight loss at some point. Expect you will need to do some changes because the diet you need to follow in five years is not likely to be the same diet you need to follow now. Uh, it's likely you will, that that some foods you enjoyed before, you won't enjoy them as much now, and vice versa, it's a changing process it's a uh, knowing yourself process, and I think people actually can understand that, some people if you tell patients to expect mixed results in their process they don't become disappointed when they stop losing weight so fast or they don't Uh, become that frustrated when they can't take part in everyone's menu for Christmas Eve. So I I think I've seen it work. It's not an easy process for everyone. I'm not going to say it's a walk in the park every day, but I am optimistic because I am convinced it is important to remain optimistic, but also because I've seen it work. And my my very
1: last question before we get into maybe more nerd stuff is you know how do these patients deal? We we started talking about this uh, the the cultural environment. Like, what do they say to family members or friends? And does it affect their social life and quality of life? Quite honestly, I mean, it
2: affects their social life, perhaps in the very early phase of their lifestyle changing uh, process, but after, I mean, not after much time. Of course, their quality of life improves and they, uh, their social life improves as well because everyone starts asking them, hey, what, what, what are you doing? You look so much better. Mm-hmm. You, are, you are flashing new clothes. You are, I mean, perhaps it's hard in the beginning, but not so. I mean, shortly after it becomes, they start feeling better with themselves one of the most uh, quickly uh, perceived benefits they refer is uh, they improve their sleep quality, and of course, I mean everyone can relate with that. If, if you had a poor a poor uh, night of sleep, you feel like crap, and if when you have a, a restful night, you feel amazing. So those things are are perhaps the the very first benefits people perceive, they start feeling better about, the, about that. They start feeling better because everyone is asking them what they are doing. And once they start, well, after their, I, I typically say, perhaps it's not super scientific, but I typically say that after their taste buds reset to be natural stimulus threshold, yes, they start enjoying more food. They start, uh, they remind themselves about this particular uh, dish they didn't find so appealing, but now they do. And benefits set in at different times. But yes, perhaps it's hard the first ten days, three weeks. But after a while, they they convince. They are convinced it's for the better.
1: All right. I also. I love so much of what you just said, including the taste buds resetting that. I think like that's a phenomenon that anybody that's been keto for a long time appreciates. For me, it was, I, I tell the egg yolk story. I think you probably heard this one, but it was a, after a year of being keto, I'd never had anything sweet. And I picked up a little bit of hard-boiled egg yolk. I thought I was, was eating a hard-boiled egg and I dropped some and I ate it, but it wasn't hard-boiled egg yolk. It was this yellow frosting from an ice cream cake that my family had gotten for a, a birthday party. And I almost gagged. It was so sweet. And I just, it was abhorrently sweet, but this is a frosting. I used to eat by the bucket full. I used to love it. And now it's the kind of thing It says your, your taste buds do reset. You can have like a couple blueberries after not having something sweet and they taste unbelievable. Um, but another thing you said that made me think about people talk about keto adaptation and fat adaptation, getting through the lull of the keto flu or getting your body into fat burning mode, where do you get all that energy? But what you just said, I think, is the more important form of keto adaptation. That's the social keto adaptation, where you go through that awkward period of having to say no to people and create a little bit of that conflict before you get to the benefit. The grass is greener on the other side of that's your norm. People accept that's your norm. And the people that are lovely, you love you are happy for you. And you get to be a thought leader for other people and actually attract positive social attention. I never thought about like social keto adaptation, but now I'm thinking about it as a term.
2: My my cheeky uh, speech, and uh, you've heard this before, I I usually say that I love non-organic food. And what I mean by that is that food is not only a source of carbon. It's not organic chemistry. Food is also a source for social interactions, a source of emotions, the source, it's it's, particularly in Mexico, a form of communication. And there is this non-carbon, non-organic part of food that is very, very important. Once you find other people who enjoy eating, I mean, once you find other people who enjoy having a jungle fish salad, and once you enjoy other people who enjoy cooking with you, or enjoy the things you are cooking for them because to, to pay back the embarrassment, one of the best things that could happen to anyone in Oxford was to find a small package cooked by Nick on your desk.
0: Because it was he's an way. amazing
2: cook. He's an amazing cook. So, so I mean, w- once you start developing that cultural, an emotional aspect of food with healthier foods that keto adaptation is crucial because that's what allows you to stay with this better lifestyle for the rest of your life
1: said ironically because i didn't always bring you the healthiest foods
2: <laughs> well sure
1: i mean you you, you brought, brought me nice that. foods though uh yeah. some nice crickets for most of you um Anyway, that's that's so awesome. I do want to get, though, into a little bit of the... It wouldn't be a conversation between us if we didn't nerd out a little bit. So, look, we don't have an agenda. Do, what do you want to talk about? Insulin resistance, ketones, some of your research, including some of the unpublished stuff, whatever. Choose a topic.
2: Uh, we'll go I mean, I, I, I don't want to... Because I want to get invited again, let's not talk about everything. So, um, choose a topic? I, I, what, what I was going to say, i always... What I uh, might proposed um, yesterday was I think everyone, health professionals, researchers and patients need to rethink this concept of insulin resistance because I think it's almost disrespectful to insulin <laughs> to evaluate how Good. It's how well it's working in your physiology by measuring glucose uptake. Yeah, it's 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 a little bit like if I am trying to evaluate if one of my patients is healthy, and I am only measuring their blood pressure. I mean, yes, part of being healthy is having a safe, well within safe range of blood pressure measurements. And if you get very, very sick, your blood pressure will go abnormally up or abnormally down. But this is not the only thing you should evaluate or considering before saying somebody's healthy. I think the same is true for insulin function. Uh, insulin is related with amino acid uptake, with fat metabolism, with cell duplication uh, metabolism and pathways is the most anabolic hormone or message in our physiology. And to say someone is insulin resistant simply by looking at their glucose changes feels inaccurate. However, almost all our understanding and interventions that try to improve insulin metabolism are glucocentric. What I am trying to say is that I strongly believe someone can be insulin resistant and have at the same time normal glucose metrics. Yeah. What I can say is that someone can have slightly abnormal glucose metrics and have a normal insulin metabolism. Let me put, for example, uh, doing... Uh, clamp studies on people following a ketogenic diet. If you have someone who follows a strict ketogenic diet yeah. and make them go into a clamp,
1: you would be... quickly describe what an uh, OGTT sure. is? Assuming
2: yeah. well, well, OGTT sure. is an all-glucose tolerance test. You, and well, these are not clamps, but they deserve sure. their own bashing. Because okay, let, let's let, let's start with the basics. People recommend well, nutrition institutions and boards recommend people to eat less than 20 to 25 grams of sugar per day. I still I mean, think that's 50 too much. He added sugar in the US. It depends on it depends on who you're reading. In the UK is 25. Uh, it, it it kind of varies. I still think 20 grams a day is too much. Mm-hmm. However, Someone at some point decided that the best way to evaluate your glucose metabolism was to give you 75 grams of sugar and measure your glucose over two hours. So let's repeat that. You're supposed to have 25 grams every 24 hours. And we assess if you are healthy or not by giving you 75 grams in two hours. It's like trying to see if you are fit by asking you to do in front of me 100 push-ups in five minutes. Not because you fail this test means your glucose metabolism, there's something wrong with your glucose metabolism. This is a, a completely antiphysiological way to assess glucose metabolism. It's, it's nonsensical. And on the other hand, it assumes that the only thing or the most important thing for insulin secretion is sugar consumption or the carbohydrate content of your food. And no one really eats dextrose, spoonful dextrose for dinner. You know, Everyone's food is complex. And we know we have measured this. This is not something... Obscure in science. We know that the amino acid content of your food plays a huge role on your insulin secretion patterns. We know that your previous meal consumption plays a huge role in your insulin secretion patterns. We know that your exercise, we know that your microbiome play a huge role in your insulin secretion uh, patterns. So again, Trying to judge if your insulin secretion is healthy or not by giving you an extremely high dose of sugar without putting these other things in context, your exercise, your microbiome, your meal before, is nonsensical. There is a very, very, I mean, this study is literally 100 years old, 1921. OGTTs in the same subject, in the same day. It's not the same curve in the morning, at noon and in the evening. And somehow, we assume, and endocrinologists assume, that this picture, these two-hour data will give me any insight or useful information about how is your glucose metabolism the rest of your life. It, ju- it just doesn't make sense. Well, this is OGTTs. GDTs. on the other hand, are even worse. Because they don't even give you glucose via your mouth. They will inject glucose and inject insulin and try to assess your glucose metabolism with an abnormal dose of glucose, with an abnormal way of getting that glucose into your body, with an abnormal metric. Because they, they, the idea in a clamp is... We will try to see what amount of glucose you need to keep your blood glucose concentration stable while receiving insulin. And we interpret your the the how hungry your peripheral tissues are for glucose or how we interpret your, your in peripheral insulin resistance on the amount of glucose you need to keep your
1: glucose concentration. In so for a so, given amount of glucose, if you have to secrete more insulin, it means you're more insulin resistant. Exactly. Um, and do you want to quickly comment on that? You said the non-physiologic way of delivering um, glucose, because earlier you were talking about Coke and then the slightly not as horrible traditional drinks that are liquid. I don't know if you want to say anything about the incretin effect. Sure.
2: I mean, exactly. That's that's exactly what I was going to, to go. Because incretins were discovered... When people realized, I think this was the early 70s, when people realized that you don't get the same effect if you inject 50 grams of glucose than if you drink 50 grams of glucose, people noticed that the insulin secretion pattern was more powerful when glucose was ingested or absorbed in the gut than injected directly through your veins, which was somehow counterintuitive because pharmacology teaches all med students that something is lost and that bioavailability of substances absorbed in the gut is never perfect. So it was, it was fairly counterintuitive for research at that moment that you would have more insulin secretion with a substance that was absorbed in your intestines than if you injected it directly. And that's how incutins were discovered. Because gut stimulation by, in this case, glucose or other forms of food, induces the secretion of these incretines, which are agonists to the glucose stimulation of the beta cells in the pancreas. So, I mean, and that's why people stopped or or started doing less glucose IV challenges and opted for oral glucose. uh, Uh, challenges so both of them like a thing, are, are, a, are a, a bad idea
1: so insulins like the thing that's talking and then the incretins if they're in balance can turn up the volume
2: on the megaphone they amplify sure. it. and Fair enough. for example we know we know that some amino acids I mean that's that's a great analogy but to to add to these we know that some amino acids are as powerful agonists as many as other drugs we prescribe for diabetes. So, yeah. for example, I don't know, uh, sulfonylureas have a comparable agonist effect on insulin secretion as leucine. I mean, then just make sure you eat protein with your carbs and your pancreas should be fine. I mean, you don't need to reinvent the wheel and to give medications for something a uh, better way of mixing your foods with the so, in terms of whole food
1: um, proteins, are there ones that you think are meaningfully more insulinogenic? We're talking about like fish and eggs and meat and X, Y, and Z based on the amino acid content.
2: Carbohydrates controls. I mean, for sure, and and uh, very again, this is not at all obscure. Although I am not sure why most endocrinologists ignore this. Um. I think that the most important index in our foods is the insulinogenic index. The same way you have a glycogenic index. And this, I mean, glycogenic meaning how much your blood glucose is raised by eating a certain food. And the standard for this is white bread. And we arbitrarily give these 100 points uh, to white bread as the GI for white bread. And we compare things against this standard. You can do the same for insulin. So you can see how much your insulin goes up if you eat white bread and compare things against it.
0: And this is how we learned
2: uh, in the early 90s that some very carbohydrate-rich foods have low insulinogenic indexes or induce low insulinogenic responses. And some low-carbohydrate foods induce high insulinogenic responses. Responses. So, for example, and perhaps not surprisingly, red meat is super insulinogenic, and oats are way less insulinogenic than Cheerios, and potatoes are more insulinogenic than, well, cauliflower. Perhaps it's not too surprising, but my my, my point is that. If you want to address insulin resistance, insulin resistance, you should mind more the insulinogenic index of your foods, of your meals, than the absolute carbohydrate content. Right. You should mind more the amino acid composition of your proteins than perhaps your carbohydrate content. Because, I mean, I have nothing against pea protein other than the taste. But it's, I mean, to be honest, the, the amino acid composition of whey protein or of red meat is just way better. I mean, if, if, if your goal is to induce a more powerful insulin response to the carbohydrates you are consuming or to the other nutrients you are consuming, you are better with a more enriched mixture of amino acids.
1: Yeah. So how do you, so... One of the limitations of that approach right now is that there isn't a big database of the insulinogenic index of foods. Of course.
2: I mean, if if I ask anyone, hey, how much isoleucine you had for breakfast? I mean, people can hardly follow the uh, carbohydrate content of their food. Uh, It would be even more difficult uh, to add the full spectrum of amino acids to all the ingredients you use in your kitchen. That rule of thumb would be the more diverse your proteins, the better.
1: Yeah. I'm imagining a little pie chart right now. People have trouble like tracking their macros. Usually three sections like protein, fat and carbs. Imagine if like fat was broken down into like PUFA, omega-3, omega-6, monosaturated fat, saturated fat, and then you had 20 for protein. Amino acids. It's, it's just
2: impractical. And I would argue that no animal, no animal in the world needs to do that. No. I, I, I am convinced that most times you can follow your natural, well, this is perhaps uh, redundant, but you can follow your instincts about food. The thing is that ultra-processed foods and the nutrient-rich environment we live now broke our instincts about yeah. what is good and what is not so it's the rule of thumb is the more libraries your proteins the better
1: yeah no i i couldn't agree more i i, I love the intuitively concept when applied in a natural context it's just people say that in a completely unnatural context it's like if you're eating intuitively when you're eating churros your intuition is going to be i crave churros
2: I mean, well, something something, uh, uh, that I've seen frequently uh, once patients start to get used to this new physiological setting, or at least that's how I frame it when I talk to them, is sometimes people are surprised and say, I am a little bit worried about myself because I am not hungry anymore. I am not as hungry as I was before. And of course, my my answer typically is, that's amazing. That's great. Because your hunger perception was not healthy before. I understand why this seems strange to you. I understand why you might be uh, surprised by this less appetite. But trust me, this is your healthy appetite threshold. This is your healthy appetite perception you were falsely and excessively hungry before. Of course you don't feel as hungry as you, as you felt then. This is actually a sign that it is working because yeah. human physiology evolved to perfectly endure prolonged times of fasting. So it is absolutely normal and it's fantastic news that you don't feel hungry for breakfast. That's that, that's just great. So okay. it's it's really, um, th- that's part of what I mean when I say that it is a know yourself path and and process because you need to know yourself again at these new and healthier hunger thresholds. Right. So how would you
1: suggest measuring insulin
2: resistance? I mean, uh, I, I am. Perhaps I am guilty of just criticizing without providing potential solutions, but I'm gonna say, I don't know. uh, But I would love to get money and time to do research on it. It's, uh, I do believe we need better metrics for insulin resistance. I believe that perhaps it is a complex metric of insulin resistance. It is a composite score of fasting glucose with postprandial uh, C peptide, uh, perhaps pondered by. I, I would actually add osmolarity changes into the mix, and I would advise everyone to go to Rick Johnson's uh, studies about that. And I think it's a, it's a com- it's very likely that the best approach is to have a complex score or complex. Multivariable score about insulin resistance. Yeah, I think that would do. That would be a better way of making decisions. However, and that said, I am a true believer of heuristics and of rule of thumbs. Yeah, and. I am sure that with enough time and money, we can provide a very complex differential equation system for predicting your glucose curve after dinner, provided we have your glucose curve after your breakfast. And perhaps that would be clinically useful someday. But at the same time, I would trust, literally, I would trust your gut, and I would trust the heuristical approach of, how are you feeling? Mm. Is your sleep improving? Do you actually... I mean, people say, it's amazing how frequently people say, I feel lighter. And do you, is your is your GI movements better? Because some people uh, struggle with that and then stop struggling about that once they add a right balance of fiber to their diets, regardless if they are low carb or not. So, I mean... What I'm trying to say is that yes, I can imagine how a better metric would look like and it would be way better than what we have now. But at the same time, I'm playing devil's advocate, perhaps we don't even need one. It would be cool for nerds like us to, to, oh, I have this amazing calculator and it's super complex and it would give you your glucose curve of tomorrow. And everyone would be, that is so cool but for battleground point of care use, perhaps we don't need that. And perhaps uh, something I don't like of nutrition science and nutrition practice is that perhaps one of our problems is that we made these unnecessarily complicated. I don't see why we should be the only animal in the world that needs to keep track of every single ingredient of every single meal, and that behaves as if metabolism was not flexible. Yeah, I, I think we can we, we can do. It's it's likely that you can improve, and that for most uh, practical uses, you don't need a super precise insulin measurement. I think it
1: was Michael Moss who coined the term nutritionism. Um, I, I could be misattributing to the, this to him, but. Um, to describe the phenomenon that yeah we kind of do th- try to break things down you look on a nutritional label this percent of this nutrient this percent of that and in breaking it down and being reductionistic you actually you're you're looking at the the trees and missing the forest which is kind of funny and i feel like something that people who really are the biohackers and nerds come to over time like you want to measure all these variables and we still have fun measuring them but in the end you're like I've tried to dissect this every single way I know how in my own body, in me and an individual. And at the end of it, the most valuable thing is the biofeedback I've gotten so that now I know what being in ketosis feels like, what having a good postprandial glucose response feels like. And then you go with that feeling.
2: I, I sometimes advise patients. I mean, for those who is reasonably safe, to fast for five days. Uh, at least once in your life, because I think it's useful to actually feel what physiological hunger feels like.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: If you've never had this truly natural hunger perception, it's very easy to confuse it with routine, with anxiety, with crave. It's the first time I fasted for four or five days. I realized I had never been hungry in my life. Which is, of course, I mean, it's it's a privilege. And of course, lots of people in the world can't say this. And it's, however, is a reality and an increasing reality in industrialized countries. It is very likely that if you live in the Western world, you've never been hungry in your life. Like, like yeah. physio- physiology textbook hungry in your life. Yeah. And it's, it's actually useful just to have this point of reference. And the next time you feel, for example, right now I've been fasting for 30 hours. And two hours ago, I felt hungry. But because I have this point of reference, I can remind myself, you're not hungry. I mean, this is not how you felt after two or three days of fasting. This is just a crave because a resident near you passed with some donuts or something like that. I mean, it's it's actually useful. It's actually useful to have a, a, a reference guide to remind yourself or to identify if you're hungry or not. And That's that's another argument, for example, against, and perhaps this is rambling now, but against counting calories. Why would we be the only animal in the world that needs to count calories to don't eat in excess? You don't. You you honestly don't. And after a while of following a healthy lifestyle, you can trust your gut. And I end up telling people, and actually, I mean, as people state in Twitter, I don't have proof, but at the same time, I don't have doubts. Every time I tell a patient, or most times I tell a patient, don't worry if you're not feeling hungry. Just eat when you feel hungry, like trust your gut. If you feel hungry, properly hungry, then eat, and stop eating once you feel satiated. Once they reach, once they've been at a healthy lifestyle for a while, they never eat in excess, and they end up gravitating towards eating once, maximum twice per day. Most of them end up eating OMAD or some version of OMAD uh, because they feel hungry once a day. Yeah, And at the same time, they don't binge on it. And they don't feel this anxiety if I need to binge on this meal because I won't eat in another day. Again, I feel that sometimes we make fasting way too complicated because uh, now you have a thousand apps that will keep track of your fasting and will give you pie charts and hours. And I mean, I I am not denying they could be useful for some. And at some parts of your process, they could add value. But at the same time, you don't need that much once you have this reverence of this is hunger, this is not. Yeah, you can simply trust it. Yeah, that's nice. Um, so
1: digging back into the insulin resistance stuff a bit, though, have you seen the recent uh, Jorgensen uh, uh, about, It was. Um, it was in what journal was it in? i'm
2: not sure i mean there's there's a brain insulin nature review paper that well i just wanted
1: to talk about the jorgensen came out in endocrinology and metabolism um last month and it was basically it was just showing this is one more thing and then we can get the brain insulin stuff of course it's one of my favorite topics given i'm a brain guy (laughs) but um that upon fasting and healthy individuals, that there's uh, a differential response upon a, quote whole body insulin resistance as measured oh. by yeah that one, and then they, they have yeah. adequate response. The point yeah, I, yeah. I wanted to just make with that is that even if you're measuring quote insulin resistance, there's going to be tissue specific effects. Different tissues are going to respond differently in response to fasting, just because it's adaptive. Which is actually probably a good prelude to talking about the brain, because. When you're fasting, it would make sense to spare glucose for the brain. So
2: um, exactly that. I mean, why glucose in your blood should tell me or should inform me about how healthy insulin metabolism in your brain is. Yeah. Not because you have normal glucose after two hour after a two hour challenge means your brain is not insulin resistant. There is a very nice paper, and actually it's in a Radiology Journal because of the techniques they used, where they tried to to estimate which tissue contributes the most to systemic insulin resistance. Because, for example, you can we know you can have different responses if you are liver insulin resistant, or adipose tissue insulin resistant, brain insulin resistant, and uh, some of these insights come from. Uh, uh, Specific knockout studies and some come from imaginology studies. And in this case, in particular, they measured labeled glucose optic in skeletal muscle, adipose tissue, the brain. They used a mixture of MRI and PET scans. And first of all, their conclusion is this is likely changing in the same person after a while. But second of all, or or the most important message I recover from that study is. Tissues contribute differently, I would add here, and also differently over time across different time points. But their consequence is not the same. I would argue that it is worse to be brain insulin resistant than, for example, skeletal muscle
1: insulin resistance. For sure. I'd, I'd much rather have shitty workouts and not get Alzheimer's
2: disease and get exactly ADHD. that's that's exactly my point. I mean, sure. So and also because of the the downstream effects yeah, yeah. brain insulin resistance would inflict yeah. eventually into other tissues. So for sure. That's also why I think that a composite measurement of or estimate, multivariable estimate of insulin resistance would be better because it's clearly not enough to say your skeletal muscles are insulin resistant. Because again, it could just be that you are following a ketogenic diet and your muscles are supposed to be insulin resistant. So this is not a surprise. This just means means that your skeletal muscle is responding the way it's supposed to when or while having a ketogenic diet. I don't care about that. If this means that your brain is getting more insulin Mm -hmm. sensitive, yeah so it's it's too reductionistic and we base way too much importance on your isolated glucose markers
1: yeah no i i think my two favorite studies that popped to mind with respect to brain insulin resistance there was Last year, one by Coleman et al., K-U-L-L-M-A-N-N, I think it was. I think it was in scientific reports. But what they showed um, was that having an insulin-resistant hypothalamus uh, predicted weight regain after lifestyle interventions at 24 weeks and at nine years, which is really interesting. But it, another thing that was in the study is that they were saying even controlled for BMI, that weight gain was preferentially visceral fat if you have more insulin resistance in your brain, which shows that you're, or, or it's consistent at least with the notion that your brain is really dictating how you partition energy. And when you're insulin resistant in your brain, not only might you have hunger cues that are off, but your peripheral body doesn't really know how to manage that excess energy as well. Is it gonna put it in muscle, fat, visceral fat? And then what are the downstream consequences? How does that cycle around? I mean, there's a huge top-down, but then there's also the bottom-up going back to the brain. I don't know if you've seen... This is my favorite paper that I've read in the past. Probably you know, I, um, uh, I'm going to butcher the author's last the name. Acids. The Yes, acids. the TGR5, Constantineo's Jankulich. It's, it's beautiful. So let's
2: talk about it. You start. I mean, it's 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 one of these examples. Well, well first of all, uh, I would love to know or to to learn how they came up with this like how how the hypothesis started because it's not intuitive to me in the beginning. It was not in the beginning. I mean, I can see it now but but, Let's quickly describe what the result. I just want to- Perhaps, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's not assume everyone is familiar with that. paper. Yeah,
1: So, so this paper was entitled Hypothalamic Bile Acid TGR5 Signaling Protects from Obesity. It was a rodent study. And basically what they showed is that the bile acid, so we think about bile acids as like, they're made in our liver for cholesterol, they're stored in our gallbladder, they're secreted to help us digest fat. That's their job. They help us digest fat in our guts. What they showed is bile acids go to the brain and signal in the brain to alter hunger, um, energy expenditure, but browning of adipose tissue and like expression of thyroid hormones, and I think it was uh, white or brown adipocytes, insulin sensitivity, like all these things, these bile acids, these fat-digesting molecules are doing in the brain, and that actually, if you are obese, a diet-induced obesity, it reduces bile acids in the hypothalamus, so then you get this feedback cycle of maybe you're having an issue with bile acids, or or you know it, being obese could actually the state of being obese could contribute to obesity. But the main point was that bile acids, the thing that digest fat, go to the brain and signal on the brain to change insulin sensitivity. For the purposes of this discussion, and I would add more just genetic model with, that, with yeah. a lot
2: of things. Sure, I mean that, it's it's a very carefully and well designed study. Yeah. They, they they messed around with inhibition and activation of this receptor to prove uh, or to to show better the mechanistic uh, response they are they are proposing. Their statistics are just beautiful. Their data is one of these. Uh, I like to say, or actually, I wish it was my quote. But good statistics don't need hypothesis testing. I mean, you want your statistics to be that good that you don't need a p-value and you don't need a hypothesis test because it's just evident the difference between uh, the the effects between groups. It is that kind of paper. I I was going to say, and what I would like to say, is that uh, I typically uh, banter endocrinologists by saying that... uh, they are experts in nothing because hormones don't exist. Because you can claim everything is a hormone. If you take the textbook definition of a hormone, a substance that's produced somewhere that acts, that acts elsewhere, well, calcium is a hormone. You, you store calcium in your bones, and there is a calcium receptor in your kidneys and in your parathyroid. And of course, my favorite hormone would be beta-hydroxybutyrate, because hydroxybutyrate is produced in your liver and has signaling properties pretty much everywhere else. Uh, it has different forms of regulation. I mean, you, could, you, could, you can build a stronger case for BHP being a hormone than for thyroid hormones, because, it's, because it has so many different signaling properties. It acts at many different levels. There are membrane receptors that are gen- directly genetic consequences. Uh, whereas, for example, for steroid hormones, you only have nuclear receptors. I mean, I typically say that either everything is a hormone or hormones do not exist. Because in this case, you could say that bile acids are acting as a hormone. They have signaling properties in the brain. They are produced in your liver and they, are, they go into your bloodstream. They reach your brain and they affect the way that tissue is responding. That said, I mean, it's, 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 it's exactly, exactly. It's, it's mind-blowing and it's, it adds to my, to my uh, ramble and rant of either everything is a hormone or nothing is a hormone and hormones don't exist. Uh, of course, it's an exaggeration, but I, what I am trying to say is physiology, it, it's, it shouldn't surprise us by now, that a substance produced somewhere that because of the way medical syllabus are built and because the way physiology chapters are placed, you mentally isolate in a physiological bucket of bile acids, our digestive system. Well, guess what? You are going to find bile acids in the metabolism chapter and in the neurology chapter. And because every, I mean, it shouldn't be surprising right now. Every single molecule that reaches your bloodstream is likely to have a signaling property elsewhere. And yes. this is a beautiful example of something that when I was in med school was taught as, oh, this is just, this is a substance that helps you digest better your food. Well, guess what? we were being disrespectful to bile acids because they are actually a very powerful hormone with significant effects in your metabolism. Yeah, I, but I, I don't think
1: that. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you in a little bit if that teaching has changed. If I get into a lecture and they're like, <laughs> "Here, we're going to talk about the neurobiology of bioacids," I'll let you know. I, I I'd be very surprised. I'd be very impressed. I'd be very surprised. Um, but yeah, it's it's these 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 every molecule seems to be doing like a million and one things. And you just come to like I'm reading this paper for me, and I think for you, it's like you think you're kind of an not an Well maybe you're more of an expert than I am being a BNMD being but like you think you understand something and then you read a paper like this and you're like whoa and at the same time it
2: makes so much sense it does because yeah. why wouldn't we have evolved a way of informing your brain you have a specific form of food because yeah. bile acids i mean bile production and secretion are stimulated by particular nutrients etc i mean it's once you think about it, well, it makes so much sense. It's actually intuitive that that human biology managed a way to have better responses and to collect information from the food you've just had or from the responses you've just had in your gut. It's super important. It's crucial to know what's happening in your gut. Why wouldn't you make use of what's already there? Yeah. No, but
1: but it always gets more complicated. I mean, he, like you alluded to earlier, the, um, the the day timing works. And I know something we're both interested in is like circadian rhythm. And you probably read, I think I tweeted about it the other day, the Thyas 2014. That seminal paper, the jet lag paper, I call it. Yeah, they basically show like this severe, severe impact that just changing the time you eat or being jet lagged, being a night shift worker, can have on your Glycemic control. And they show it's causative. You can do like the fecal transplant studies from someone who's jet lagged or someone who's not to mice and make the mice obese, obese. They don't eat anymore. But you just gave them a jet lagged microbiome and now they become obese. So there's timing. And there's these ridiculous oscillations, like tenfold changes in not just the microbiome community, but like where it is, the biogeography of the microbiome, like the moving into the niche, moving out of the um endothelial niche, it becomes so unbelievably complicated. And I think, and now I'm ranting a little bit, but this is what I meant by, and and what I think you meant by even the, 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 I think the best biohackers, they go through it all and they're reading the literature and they come to the point that I love these data, but I also realize the most, like, I'll never ever be able to capture the data I need to overcome to, to do more than the wisdom of my body if I can get to that healthy place where I can listen to my body. Because there's no way I'm measuring the oscillations of you know, my microbiome in terms of their biogeography to predict how I'm going to respond to like, like 23.4 grams of liver plus XYZ. It's at the same, same
2: time, to go back to my heuristics point, why would you need it? I mean, it's it's why would we be the only species in the world that needs this amount of data? Don't get me wrong, I love data. I track everything, every single detail Detail I can. And I love trying to see or comparing the, my heart rate variability between workouts. And I take blood samples every three months. And I love data, but at the same time, I try to remind myself that data is not necessarily information. Information is not necessarily knowledge. Knowledge is not necessarily wisdom. And in this regard, if, I mean, not, you can have lots and lots of data and reach the same conclusion, you would have reached with, well, I would like to say common sense, but with with sound wisdom about your physiology. And you don't need an aura ring to know you need to sleep and to, to take care of your sleep hours. You know, you, you, you really don't need that. It's nice to have it. And all of us like to nerd out about that. But I, I think that perhaps one of the most influential to my thinking uh, lecturers uh, I had in Oxford, one of them is Alan Garfinco. He's a mathematician from UCLA and he was a visiting professor at Oxford. And he gave the narrowed a version of the physiology curse and because it this was mathematical modeling of physiological systems. And he has a full the full course is in YouTube. And he has like his 30 lectures there. If you really want to narrow out differential equations for it, your physiology textbook. He's convinced that everything is oscillation and that uh, most physiological systems can be understood better in terms of oscillation. I agree with that notion. But what I am trying to say is that because most of it is oscillation, getting one data point or getting all your data points at the same time won't give you the full picture because it's oscillation. I mean, it's, and at the same time, if you're, Brain doesn't need a computer. Well, you could. I we can go into the debate if the brain is a computer another day. But I mean, what I am trying to say is that physiology is heuristic in a way. It's it's also has rules of thumb and certain patterns that if you stick to them, if you respect your feeding times, your sleeping times. And you're working out times. Yeah, you are actually likely to be healthy. I mean, you 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 will certainly be healthy even if you're not tracking every single spoon that goes into you. Yeah. Have you
1: heard the term allostasis?
2: Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. And sure.
1: basically, it's a term that describes the like. I'm gonna probably butcher this too, but the like. A, adaptive predictability of homeostatic mechanisms so your body's not going to just say keep your blood glucose at 90 milligrams per deciliter all the time it actually makes sense if you go to exercise your body's going to want to increase it because it's predicting a particular need and so things change over the course of the day they oscillate based on what your body is predicting you need at certain times it's anticipatory. And this makes sense. Like a cephalic (laughs) Physiology
2: is way too important to be left out to your human and blood. But your body makes heuristics.
1: They make rules. Like if you taste something sweet, it generally makes sense to release a little bit of insulin beforehand, because we think blood sugar is going to spike. So let's have the insulin there ready. And we start to break those rules the way we live. Um, But anyway, I think, I think all of us might need to be wrapping up so this this was always special for me i i um, always appreciate chatting with you do you have anything you want to close by saying where people can find you we can plug your youtube i know i don't listen to it because i don't speak spanish but <laughs> a lot about mexico you want to uh people by your youtube and
2: uh if any of you speak spanish uh i have a patient uh content-focused YouTube channel with one of my friends. It's about preventive medicine and it's called Dr. Comadre, D-R-C-O-M-A-D-R-E. And, uh, yeah, all all content is in Spanish. Uh, My personal social media, I'm most active active in Twitter and I'm not that active and I am not that much active. Uh, It's at score. S O T O M O T A and Yeah, it's it's been a pleasure, it's been a blast as always. Uh again, Nick and I particularly can go about can go like this for days. So we, we could we should try to set a world record for long. Well we
0: for could, for, we, for, like, for we we G back, yeah. back easily. Well, don't but even attempt it. Support. Don't even attempt it without just, inviting me to sit in and hang out. Sure. <laughs> and we can it's fast easy. through it too. See? Yeah. <laughs> so, we adapted to have the longest podcast ever. That's right. That's right. Boys, this has been amazing. Dr. Adrian Moto, uh, Sotomay- excuse me, Sotomoto, thank you so much for joining us. Your content's amazing. And this discussion was unreal. Um, Dr. Nick Norwitz, always a pleasure. Great job hosting. Great questions. Just I, I could listen to this for hours.
1: Um, Oh, uh, Adrian just got kicked out. Okay. Well, I guess this is a good place to start. Um, he says, let me re-log in. I, I, I this was a little bit, anyway, we, we were all, all confused about timelines and scheduled yesterday, but it's always just, just like, we have good chemistry yeah. and, um, so awesome. and so I, I, I know he has to go see a patient now, so I'm, I'm going to let him run off the, he was super generous to give us some cool. of his time. So well, no worries. awesome.
0: Thank you so very much, and this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio.